for the people. This is street radio for unsung hero. Riding in the Rigo, trying to stay legal. My daughter found Nemo, I found the new primo. Buenos dias. Como está toda la gente en Chicago, en el mundo. En el mundo. Oh, my bad, my bad, my bad. It's because, you know, they play playing soccer today, so I be getting carried away sometimes. I forget to turn the Spanish you, off. You blaming soccer? You know what I'm saying? you getting carried away? Oh, I should say football. <laughs> They're playing football today. Right. It's France and Argentina. If you've been watching the World Cup, the final is today. We get to see if Lionel Messi takes it, gets uh, the championship he deserves, or if France wins again. But let's get back on topic. Cause you know, ooh, you are excited. You know what I'm saying? You're excited about that football. It's your boy, Hilario Dominguez. And big homie, big sis. That's right. Yo, give, girl. Me, give it to me. Give it to me. Give me Yo all girl. that. <laughs> he just tried to do a gospel run, y'all. Look. He does too much. Y'all need to rein him in. He does too much. But look, um, we are here today. Shout out to my sons who are in the studio somewhere. Them boys. Um, I thought they were like going to sit in with me and and chill and go live, but I should have known better. I got to say this. It was a setup. I got to say this. If y'all don't know Tara, um, then let me tell you, she loves these boys. Like you, I know, I know these boys just from hearing all the stories that she tells. And I've never met them up until recently. Um, and now that I have met them, they some big boys. <laughs> them some big boys. That's why they football stars. They man. are football stars. Those are my hearts. They're at home for a little while. Um, you know, I keep telling you all send me EBT cards because, <laughs> yo, all they do is eat. So I'm back on this cooking grind. I got to like be in my head budgeting meals, figuring out, okay, okay, it's been three hours or two hours. The boys got to eat. It's ridiculous. Of course, that's not my life when they're home. I just kind of eat when I forget or remember or whatever the case may be. But at any rate, I'm glad that they're home um, for a little more while. My daughter will be home soon. And my uh, nephew, who's like my bonus son, will be home. Um, and so they'll all be home for the holidays. So I'm kind of Shout excited out. about that. Shout out to the family stamps. Atar, if you ever want to adopt a, another son, <laughs> and if you want a Latino son, you know what I'm saying? I can always eat, too. Yeah. I don't have a prop look because he can't. You know what I'm talking about? He can. He can. He throws down. Throw it down? Yes. Nah. So um, I'm going to get to that. I actually owe you an apple pie. Let's so, go. Let's, yeah, you heard I it did. here first, Chicago. <laughs> you heard it here first. I'm getting an apple pie I, at some he point. Will, he will know. You'll get it this week because I know, like, after this week, you like, you know, not around. So Well, we we all celebrating this. You know, we're coming up on the holidays. I hope you all are not stressing too much about about gifts because, you know, at the end of the day, um, love is enough to create smiles with the oh, family. Oh, you know? look at Don't that. Don't stress too much, you know, look especially my working class people. We work too hard to stress about uh, about gifts at the end of the year. You know what I'm saying? Like, time is the best gift. Look at that. It's so sentimental. <laughs> So sentimental. I know if I hit my sons with that time, it's the best gift. They're going to be like, uh, 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 swear, my, swear yeah. we ain't getting nothing. I'm going to need to use so, your time to go to the store. So, <laughs> <laughs> 
So, you know, unless something, something uh, is still going on. But listen, I am I'm happy to be here this morning. I'm happy to be with my dude this morning. And we're going to really get into something. We actually are going to have a guest uh, this morning, someone who's really dear to my heart and just kind of came in because she mm-hmm. rocks with me the way she does on the fly. Uh, Helen Schiller, who just Shout recently um, published a book, Daring to Struggle, Daring to Win. Helen is pretty, pretty, pretty dope uh, and was quite instrumental in organizing the uh, Rainbow, Rainbow Coalition, which oh, ultimately uh, set the foundation for Hill Washington's historic victory. So she's going to jump in a little bit later while, we, mm. while we're handling that part of the conversation. But um, this first half of the, of the conversation between, between Eladio and I. Hey, she, she just she revealed my nickname to the entire city of Chicago and listeners beyond. Because, you know, us so, Latinos, we have a nickname. I know, for but everybody. that's so dope. That's so, I love that. Because, you know, um, it's, it's, not, it's not Francisco, it's Pancho. So if you're Eladio, you're Yayo or Lalo. So, you know, that's. But, okay, that's real okay. talk, though, that's like a dope nickname. I'm like, all nicknames are not mutually, like, dope. Because I know some that's, like, corny, and I wish these grown people would get rid of them. And I'm like, why are you still letting people call you that? Yeah. And you 60, but, yo, that, that ain't my fight. Which is one of them. Just, just, I, you got, I, I, what's. Pookie. Pook, all right. Okay, there it is. Tuna. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, Why hey, you want to be walking around in the hey, streets with somebody calling you tuna? Hey, uh, is is beyond me. But. Hey, shout out to tuna. <laughs> Wherever you are. Wherever you are. God bless you. But uh what we gotta talk about today is myth busting. Oh, we're doing some myth busting. We're gonna, we gonna bust some myths. We're gonna we gonna bust them wide open because uh we uh, uh we as a people, as mm-hmm. Chicagoans, as Illinoisans, uh, as Americans, we walk around with a lot of assumptions about other cultures, other ethnic groups, and that misinformation or those assumptions play in the back of our head, mm-hmm. and they they dictate or guide some of the decisions that we make about our lives and certainly how we interact with other people. And so we're operating with each other based on some misinformation, and so this morning, uh, Eladio and I are going to take the opportunity to dispel some myths that's just out there floating amongst the people and causing us to interact with each other in a way that is destructive and not um, constructive. And we're tearing mm-hmm. down rather than building up. And we are at a place in our country and certainly we're at a place in this city where we have to build up. So, yo. That's what it's about. I wish we had some like detective music right here, like, dun, dun, dun. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? As we're getting uh, into talking about these myths. So, so what are some of these uh, myths, Tara? What are some that we can start off with? You know, one of the things that I, you hear a lot uh, when, you know, making generalizations, particularly about inner city black people. Yeah. Right. Especially our young men. They all rappers. They all want to be basketball players. Mm. You know, they all, you know, sporting locks and shaking their head. They all sag. Mm-hmm. Like real, some real stereotypes, mm. right, about who we are. And as a mother of two, like, young black men mm. and and my uh Bonus, he's my great nephew, but you know, um, I have the pleasure of kind of raising him. He's your son by all yeah, intents and purposes. Yeah, that's all intents and purposes. Yeah, he's yeah. mine too, right? And 
they are definitely dispelling every stereotype that is heaped upon young black men. However, because they, you know, because the skin is the crime, right? Mm. Because they still locked into the skin they in. <clears throat> I am, you know, I'm, I have perpetual fear with them out in a greater Americas because mm-hmm. they are still young black men in America, but they are collegiates. They're collegiate athletes. They're collegiate. You know, they're strong academicians. They serve. Um, they're very protective of their their nephew. They're very respectful of their mother. They're very concerned about the greater community and the politics at hand. And so uh, one is deeply into the arts. Mm-hmm. Nalia is starting his own business, his own clothing line called Succeed. Nazareth has his own um, small business. He's a handyman because he uh, ultimately <laughs> wants to get into construction. But right now he does a lot of like small at home projects. So mm-hmm. even as they are academicians and athletes, they are both taking the time to all of them, all three of them, to develop themselves and to develop their other interests and certainly develop it to the point where that's going to be some Income generating, which is, you know, look out for your girl, right? <laughs> Run that shop. Um, and then um, Noah, Amaria Noah, is a musician. He's already released a movie, releasing his own music on Spotify and some other um, outlets. So they're already dispelling myths and stereotypes about what it means to be young, black, and male in America. Mm. So, sorry, here's a question for you because I, th- I feel like listeners and, and all of us going to be like, yeah, you know, Racist white supremacist folks see young black men in a certain way, and of course, they're only going to accept them if they fit into the box that they want them to fit into, right? I.e., um, athlete, um, music star, you know, you name it, etc. Um, can you talk a little bit about? I'm wondering, like, is there some of that myth within the black community? Um, with you know, because I'm thinking about how. Latinos, we uphold our own myths sometimes with each mm, other. Mm. And so, like, is there some of that going on with this myth that you're talking about, you know, in, in terms of trying to fit young black men into certain boxes, um, i.e.? Yeah, they're, 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 <clears throat> I mean, I think the, 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 you know, white supremacist structure kind of supports that you put us in boxes and mm. we perpetuate that, mm. right, to a large degree. Um, many of our community members perpetuate some of that. But I don't necessarily want to focus the light on those who perpetuate the myths. I want to say that um, at this juncture, it's critical, A, to dispel the myth, to point to excellence within our community, and then and, and in doing so, see how we can amplify that excellence to build real solidarity within other communities who are also being marginalized and have stereotypes that is, mm. that is um, ultimately helping to destroy the fabric of who they are, right? So um, when we perpetuate uh, the stereotypes is when we, as black people, mind you, um, support the negative rap. Right. That encourages us to to uh, be misogynistic, encourages us to practice violence and preach violence. I was saying to to my my sons one day, I said, you know, we're the only ethnic group that sell records talking about killing each other. Mm. (laughs) Like, you don't. I don't even hear that. 
um, and, and trust me, my 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 bandwidth of, of Latinx music is limited. But mm-hmm. I don't even I don't hear it like that. I certainly don't hear it in in popular culture and pop music like that, right? Mm. But when with regard to the hip hop culture as it stands now, because that's not even what hip hop was when I was their age, sure. right? Um, hip hop when I was their age was very positive. It was very pro black. It was very build up the community, mm. and we've just devolved. Um, and selling millions and millions of records and making millions and mil- you know making hundreds of young men millionaires by basically dest- helping to destroy our community and holding us up. There's this poem <clears throat> that I um, recite oftentimes when I'm speaking to large groups of, of black folks. When I was in a teacher, I taught eighth grade like most of my teaching career. Mm-hmm. And I was usually over graduation. But Maya Angelou has this poem called um, The Black American Pledge. And at the toward the last stanza of the poem, she says, we hold up to the to the mirror over the world saying, regard the loveless. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's like how we put ourselves on front street. Yeah. Um, by not showing due diligence and due reverence and love to our own selves, which means right. it makes we allow that when we do that, we allow other people to infiltrate. Right? It's, it's like, like you open the door. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> you know, you said something earlier that that I think is a myth over here. Right? That it might be a myth that other people have about um, Latino music or or Latinx music. Um, but yeah, we there's a lot of violence within our music as well. Right? Traditional Mexican music like corridos and banda music, a lot of it can talk about um, machismo in this almost romantic way, right? And when I say machismo, we're talking about oftentimes toxic masculinity, mm. right? This idea that um, the man is uh, ahead of or above a woman, right? You often hear that kind of rhetoric in, in older traditional uh, Mexican music. Mm. Now, not all of it, but it's there, right? You, you get this sort of pride of I'm a man and this is how men should act or be. Mm. Um, you know, I actually, growing up, that was something that I uh, didn't like about the music or didn't like about the culture, right? Especially growing up um, in a household where I saw alcoholism and I saw uh, domestic abuse. Um, you grow up and you think, well, that if that's what it means to be, at least over here, if that's what it means to be Mexican... I don't want it. I don't want a part of that. Right? So there's there's this this um this myth I think as well um that we uphold, uh, you know, as Latinos that we don't see the the violence that we are perpetuating in our music and some of our arts, right? And I think that's been uh <laughs> difficult difficult for us as a culture. Um you know, I I'm I'm also thinking about another Another myth of like Mexicans specifically is is a myth that I've I've heard. Mexicans are hard workers. Now wait, wait, I think wait wait, wait 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 if you please drill down on that because yeah, when I tell to. you you guys have an amazing publicist because <laughs> like the whole Mexican community got a dope publicist because <laughs> everywhere else particularly in black communities you that's what you hear yeah right. 
They own everything. They in our communities buying up, taking everything because uh-huh. they work so hard. They live like 30 deep to an apartment until mm-hmm. they can help each other pull themselves up by their bootstraps, you know? Yeah. And so over here on our end, that becomes both the what we're admiring and what we're vilifying at the same time. Yeah. Um, so here's what I will say. Hard work ex- exists in all cultures, right? So I'm not going to say Mexicans are not hard workers. But what I say when well, I bring that myth up because despite being hard workers, right, we still have to take into account certain things. Like, for instance, my dad is a hard worker. But you know what else that means? That means time away from family. Yeah. Right. So those things I want to get into after break. I know we're hitting it. After we're break, we're yeah, getting we callers already. I know. We you know came in hard. We'll be right back. There are some people that we must thank our sponsors for allowing us to occupy this space. So, Eladio, hit me with the sponsors. Let's thank our gente. Let's thank our people for supporting us always. Uh, Chicago Teachers Union Foundation, the Chicago Federation of Labor, our our friends at SEIU, uh, ACII. Thank you all very much. Of course, our friends of... Brand, uh, friends of Brandon friends Johnson. Of Brandon Johnson. I don't know what he's up to nowadays. I don't know. He's just killing time. He's out there. Uh, CCCTU. <laughs> um, you know, thank you all for continuing to sponsor our show. You know, as we as we get to have these kind of com- these hard conversations with Chicagoans. Um, speaking of Chicagoans, let's go to Brother Eduardo in the Southwest Side, talking about some work programs in high school. Check that out. We already got callers calling in, y'all. Let's go. Brother, you're on air. Talk to us. I think we're we're having some some tech difficulties as he's as he's getting on. Let me um let me I do want to elaborate, right? Because here's what I say. Uh, I want to emphasize again, I'm not saying Mexicans are not hard workers. Hard workers exist everywhere, but what I'm saying is as we value that and uphold that quality in the Mexican community, we also have to see the impact that it's had on families. And in my personal life, um, this hard work ethic, hard work quality has also had an impact where, you know, we didn't have our uh, our, our father there all the time because he was working hard, right, providing for the family. Um, we didn't have our, our, our mom there all the time because she had to work hard, provide for the family. Let me tell you, these people still to this day, because they're working class folks, my dad to this day, You'll find him up at 3 a.m. getting ready to drive his truck to continue to provide food for his family. My mom, to this day, you know, cleaning houses despite having had carpal tunnel, you know, cleaning houses just to try to make ends meet. So, yeah, people are hard workers. And there are pros and cons to that. Mm-hmm. There, are, there are different sides to that, you know. I want to I want to jump in on that in terms of the hard work part um, in term uh, and what that looks like in the black community. But I think we do have our guest back. Eduardo is here. Eduardo, talk to us about um, work programs in high school. Yes. Good morning. Can you hear me? Yes, we can. How are you? Thanks for joining us. Yeah, good. I was I have this statement here. I I went to Jones Commercial and I uh, did uh, in my senior uh, school in the morning and work uh, at Harris Bank in the afternoon. But I had this thing in my mind that was running for a few days yeah. regarding carjackers and illegal immigrants. And what you're talking about, 
most of them, the work ethic is very good. And the carjackers, because they don't wait around for somebody to tell them. They go ahead and do it. I, those two combinations is, if I'm an employer, I would be hiring those people <laughs> before some lazy suburban white kid or or somebody from Kelly High School or something like that. that. I would put them in front of the line as far as being hired because of the work ethic, because of their uh, bravery, their aggressiveness to go and do something as opposed to waiting for something to happen or somebody to tell them to do something. Let's see what you guys think about that statement. Yeah, thanks a lot, Eduardo, for chiming in. Um, I, I will say that uh, in the in the community that fights for immigrant rights, we prefer the term undocumented uh, person rather than uh, illegal uh, immigrant. We know that people just can't be illegal. Um, that's just not a thing. But moving on to, to the larger point that you were getting at in terms of work ethic, um, again, I, I think this, this applies to working class people across the board, right? And, and oftentimes, um, I think it gets applied to to immigrants, and it's almost seen as a compliment, but there's an undertone of prejudice and oppression there because what's happening is people are saying immigrants are, uh, the word, using your words, brave, hardworking, courageous, you know, aggressive, right, to work. But why? Folks are coming to this country with nothing and feel like they have to do everything they can to make ends meet, right? And then capitalism says... Well, we can take advantage of that, and, and oftentimes we and see do. lower wages, right? <laughs> and do. And, and do. And so, again, I, I want to uh, dispel this myth of, of hard work because it's often used in terms of labor in an oppressive way to oppress a, a labor force, in this case an, an immigrant vulnerable labor force that uh, oftentimes doesn't have any, any rights protecting their, their labor. Um, and, and then black people, in that same note, yeah. get angry, and and then there becomes this contentious relationship between black and brown people because we're 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 at that bottom rung, and then the same oppressor comes in and goes a notch below, unpaying people under the table, not giving people their rights, not paying benefits, not regarding their humanity, but then we as a group get angry. At our brother man, at the other man, right? Rather than saying we need to unite against our common oppressor, which is really what this whole conversation, uh, what I wanted this whole conversation to be with, because I just happen to have and enjoy some beautiful, authentic, real relationships with folks of all ethnic groups. Mm. Uh, but the core value, what makes those relationships work is that they're rooted in truth. That's right. Whether that truth is painful, whether that truth is ugly, we don't mind putting a mirror up to ourselves and being reflective about what we represent in this space and meeting each other on the platform of truth, what is real, and building on those things for which we have in common. Right. Not what makes us dissimilar. And even those things that make us dissimilar, we have a reverence and a respect for the culture. We have a respect for the culture. And I think what this country wants to do is further divide people, marginalize people based on what they based on their differences and not unite them based on what they have in common. I think you're exactly right. It's about connections, right? And building bridges, not raising them um, like one of our electeds has done in the past. But 
getting back on topic here here's you know we were talking about immigration and here's something uh, on the point that you were making tara about cre- uh, finding similarities and finding connections right and and talking through that immigration while important to uh, latinx community right is isn't necessarily top of mind for the entire Latinx community. Right? Mm. I think folks that have a more direct that, that blows my mind when you say that. I'm yeah, just gonna let you know that. I, I hear you, right? Because that's usually the the top of platform when uh, elected speak to Latinx community, right? They think they almost equate. Okay, if I'm talking to Latinx uh, folks, then I should talk about immigration. And again, while it is an important issue um, in the Latinx community. It is not the only important issue, Thanks. right? I woke. Uh, I I was raised in Pilsen. My parents are both immigrants. Immigration is important to me, and you know what else is important to me? Safety. My God, right? Friday, a tragedy happened at Benito Juarez, the community high school in our community. Four students were shot. Two students were killed. Right at dismissal. And that week before, a young man was killed right at dismissal at Michelle Clark, right at the, on the west side in a black community. So, again, those similarities in terms of what's important to both of us, what's both communities, impacting us. what's right. impacting us. And the idea of safety impacts black and brown communities alike. Right. And and. That's really important to bring up as well, because those issues are also important issues in Latinx communities, right? And, and, in, and in other communities as well, And we have to be able to build those bridges to be able to talk about what is it that we need to address those issues across all of our communities, rather than seeing, okay, this, this issue is, a, is just particular to this community. Because here's the other part, too. When I was in school in the East Coast— um, in Baltimore, immigration was also a very important issue to the black community because there were many black immigrants from different countries all across right, 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 the right, world. Right. And it's so crazy because we are so um, we just we're so limited in our worldview. Right. Um, and, it, and, I, and I think it serves a darker purpose. Right. To talk about the immigration issue only as it pertains to Latinx community members, because that's the stick that they like to wave around and then beat up on or dismiss the issues in black communities. Mm. However, they don't go uptown where you have an immigrant community of 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 a deep African Mm. immigrant community from Nigeria, from Ghana, from Cameroon, mm-hmm. right? They don't they don't address that. You have people coming from uh, Eritrea and mm-hmm. Ethiopia to this country, but for some whatever reason, whenever we're talking about undocumented, that conversation just slips squarely on the shoulders of Latinx community. So again, we're not even being inclusive when we when we talk about that. We talk about a sanctuary city. Mm. But who provided sanctuary once people showed up? It was the community organizations, both black and brown. That's right. Churches, community organizations. The city itself proper did very little to actually provide sanctuary to the folks who actually showed up. Not even to mention the people who are here. That's right. 
Right. So, no, and I think there are different types of stereotypes, right? And and uh, a caller, Brian, wants to talk about stereotypes, perhaps uh, in terms of space, right, and and geography and, and region. Uh, Brian, you're on the line. Uh, talk to us a little about some of the some of the stereotypes. Okay, uh, we're actually going to skip that. We're still continuing to have some difficulties. Um, apologies to the caller, but we'll keep moving on. Speaking of space, though. Here's here's something, and maybe you uh, you can tell me a little bit about more on the west side, Tara. But in the southwest side, you'll have different stereotypes from folks living in Pilsen to Little Village to Brighton Park to back of the yards, right? And maybe it's something like, oh well, Pilsen is gentrified now, and so they no longer deal with violence, <laughs> right? And then it becomes like, oh, well, you know, Pils- people in Pilsen don't necessarily have to worry about that anymore. And I think we're seeing a lot of that as well. And then we start to separate ourselves by community. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And but understand that you understand what preceded and even in your conversation, what preceded separating by a community gentrification mm-hmm. entered into the mix. And one of, one of the things that vexes me the most about gentrification is the idea that in order to improve a community, you got to remove people indigenous to that community out. Mm-hmm. And then other people who are not necessarily from that community pr- force them out through money, land grabs, finances, closing of schools. All of these things are then done to that community to make that community vulnerable for takeover so that gentrification can occur. And then once the gentrifiers move in, very rarely are there good neighbors. Very rarely is it, a, is it is an idea of welcoming and inclusion. You know, I've seen the attitude be even, they're still vexed at the, the last vestiges of, of people who were unique, who were previously from that community are still hanging on. Mm-hmm. I think we have Brian now on the on the line. Brian, uh, you wanted to share something. Yes. Uh, good morning. Good morning. Uh, well, I just wanted to say that uh, you know uh, uh, we uh, when we take a look at the uh, mediums of uh, uh, television uh, news, uh, television uh, a lot of times in general, but specifically TV news is a lot of the times in relation. Um, uh, to what they report. It's not what they report, it's what they don't report, and it lends itself to stereotypes, and often uh, these stereotypes are very uh, negative, and uh, we look at, uh, uh, my understanding, 95% of talk radio, uh, right-wing extremist radio, um, where they just basically repeat uh uh, the messages uh, from uh, Donald Trump, and they don't allow uh, any uh, actual uh, response, uh, oppo- opposing responses on these stations. And I think uh, that, uh, you know, uh, it, 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 these uh, uh, realities lend themselves uh, to stere- negative stereotypes that just are not true. And I think we have to keep in mind that about Many sources say that about 50% of the American population working paycheck to paycheck, maybe $1,000 in the bank with inadequate health care. I think uh, uh, we need to kind of keep these facts in mind. And um, I think uh, these are the basic comments I wanted to make. Yeah, Brian, I think... 
if I may conclude, mm-hmm. uh, go Brandon Johnson. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Brian. And, and we appreciate you bringing up the impact that media has on, <laughs> on perpetuating, perpetuating these stereotypes. Or breaking them, right? Or lack thereof trying to break stereotypes. So, Brian, we appreciate that. Um, we are getting ready to, to welcome, though, our... Our guests. We're good. We're good. Yes. Well, Tara. let me <clears throat> let me introduce. But one of the uh, Facebook uh, viewers said they also, when gentrifying communities, make lots of false allegations and false reports on the people indigenous to that community, hmm. uh, just further upsetting the 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 community and dividing the community. So, what I want us to be clear on is that we wanted to start this show off by dispelling myths, saying, "Listen." In each of these spaces, there are some truth and there is some fallacy. Mm. But what ultimately our the salvation of this city, the soul of this city and the soul of this country is going to have to rest on building real coalitions between people who on the outside may be very different. But when it gets to the issues, have very much so in common. So in saying that, I have the privilege of having a relationship with Helen Schiller. I've known her all of my life. Um, She recently published her book, Daring to Struggle, Daring to Win. But for our purposes today, Helen was very instrumental in two, uh, A, the original Rainbow Coalition, which was... um, offshoot of the Black Panther Party uh, where uh, Chairman Fred was trying to unite poor and oppressed people of all ethnic groups. So we had the Black Panthers, we had the Young Patriots and we had um, others coming in. And so we got to take a break real quick. I think that was my message. We got to take a break real quick. But as soon as we come back, we're going to be joined by Helen Schiller and we got to wrap up this hour. Thank you so much. Hola, 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 hola. Hola, ¿cómo está? Just want to give you a quick update. Argentina is up to it. Oh, thank you. <laughs> That's all. And I'm rocking my bear shirt only because I'm a loyalist. And we have a tailgate at the Chicago Teachers Union today with our new members. So I hope you guys join us. Um, Tara, let's get into it. So let's get into it with Helen Schiller. Hi, Tara. Hey, Helen. First of all, you know what? This came so last minute, so thank you so much for taking my call and jumping on the air with me. I really appreciate it. You, like, always have my back when I call and have a question or wondering about something or need to just have your expertise or your historic memory of so many events. And so I want to jump right into it. We're talking about, we're like, we're on the precipice of a mayoral election, right? Just right around the corner. And one of the things that Ilario and I have been discussing is the need to build this um, coalition to build some solidarity between the black and brown community, for which I know it's just really been devolving, Right. And I think um, George Foreman, when the George Floyd thing happened and stuff was popping off and Cicero and stuff was popping off and Berwyn uh, on the West Side, um, it just reached a fever pitch. So I want to I want you to give us a little bit of your history with building that coalition from the initial Rainbow Coalition up into and through the Rainbow Coalition that laid the foundation for Hare Washington's historic victory. Okay, so um, uh, this is, uh, so I actually came to Chicago in 1972 to join 
the Intercommunal Survival Committee, which was white people working under the direction of the Black Panther Party uh, to, uh, uh, to organize white people to join the Black Lives Struggle for Liberation. So having said that, the Rainbow Coalition was actually... Um, it was actually a phenomenon that occurred in 68 and 69. It was the grandchild of Fred Hampton, who was the chairman of the Illinois chapter of the Black Panther Party. And um, he uh, he joined with um, uh, Chacha Jimenez of the Young Lords Organization and um, his field secretary, the field secretary for the Black Panther Party, Bobby Lee, organized um, reached out to the young patriots who were in Uptown and organized them to join. So it was a coalition of uh, poor white uh, Puerto Rican and, um, and 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 the Black Panther Party. And they all participated in survival programs. They all organized in their own communities. They all had serious issues uh, surrounding police misconduct and um, addressing issues of uh, public safety from that perspective or as a result of that dynamic and uh, as well as very a series of, of issues that related to poor and working people across the board. Uh, by the time that we got to Chicago, repression had taken its toll and, um, and, and pretty much many of the folks were either dead or underground. Um, but, so, but the survival problems had survived, and people throughout the city left the leadership. People throughout the city were still engaged in many of those organizing efforts, including your mom, Tara, mm. um, in, in Um After we got to Chicago, uh, we can be obviously working with the Black Panther Party, and ultimately through the mid-70s, um, got involved or, um, after 1975-76. Uh, joined with um, CHPO, Chicago Housing Tenant Organization, they advanced um, uh, uh, Rudy Lozano out of Casa on Mentilson uh, um, and Art Vasquez and um, uh, uh, people out of West Town, um, Mecca Sorrentini, PSP. There were, there were groups from all over the city that joined in this coalition and later on it was Nancy Jefferson and Dorothy Tillman around issues of housing and um, and education, but we initially formed a coalition called the Coalition to Stop the Chicago 21 Plan. Mm -hmm. And at the heart of that was a master plan that most large cities at the time were developing and clearly in Chicago had, which took one step forward, the um, planning policies of Richard J. Daly, which was really to um, of urban re what the charging minister dubbed as urban removal, which was a policy like you talked about earlier, where um, where the city really in order with it, the assumption and gentrification that you were talking about, that it was always better to improve the community by moving the people out of the community um, who are currently living there and building something else there. What was happening in many of our communities was they claimed the benefits were going to, the things they were building were going to benefit the people who are living there. Like for us in Uptown, they said the city college was going to benefit the people who live there, a health center and a middle school. But in every instance, they were building those things where we lived, where people lived, so that um, it was impossible for them to stick in the community and enjoy the benefits. Um, and this was happening all over the city, and we and had been for a long time. And now that with the, this 21 plan, the idea was to really uh, whiten the inner city and to to impact. It was going to impact all the immediately surrounding communities. So New North was seriously impacted. Uh, Pilsen was impacted. That meant Cabrini was really at risk, as well as um, Pilsen and uh, surrounding communities going west. 
um, and it affected us as well in Uptown because we were kind of the line of defense that most of the people who were living in Uptown at the time, which was really diverse, um, were uh, people who had been displaced from somewhere else, and, and here we were taking a stand that wasn't going to be displaced anymore. So we, uh, but at the heart of this was not just that we weren't going to be displaced, but that everyone was engaged in some way in the day-to-day struggle of people to survive. And we saw through that our commonality. And I think that that was really important going into the 80s because of the issues in the period of time, there's two years before Bell Washington um, was recruited, the two years before he was actually two to three years recruited to run for mayor, an initiative of uh, a black plebiscite in CBUS, which was being formed at the time to conduct that, as I recall. I might have been a little off, but... Um, uh, as a result of, of, of that, in the relationships we had with people all over the city, but also out of the 21 plan coalition um, came leadership that said, we've got to focus on the things we have in common, and we need to address the issues that are stopping us from being 100% behind Harold Washington, um, specifically by uh, Rudy Lozano and people in the Latino community who were struggling around bilingual education that was getting a resistance from some of the black leadership in the Board of Education. And and so here's a big discussion, as I recall, was held with Manfred Bird and leaders in the uh, progressive leaders in the Latino community, especially in Pilsen, but also engaging folks from Westtown. And, um, and it was specifically geared at we have to figure out how to understand each other and agree with each other on how we move forward and how addressing each of our issues is not going to take away from either one of us, that we can do that if we stronger, not weaker, and that this is really important in this time, largely because of the, of, of the likelihood that Harold is going to be a candidate, how important uh, his election will be. And how you're, you're, you're dropping gems. I, I have a <laughs> I have a question on that because that, that's so good to me, and and I'm I'm wondering what did those conversations look like when y'all came to the table? I'm at, this is how I picture it in my head that y'all came. They were in a room at some point. Everyone was at the table. You know, you had Tara's legendary mom and Rudy in there. Talked about all these all these great legendary organizers in the city. They all came together, and you all were trying to figure out how to build those bridges. What was that like? Well, let me actually. I, I need to add. I need to add one dynamic, which was in 1980. Um, all, all Chicago City News started to be published. The end of 1980, okay. and for the next three years, it really did report on activities that people were engaged in throughout the entire city, organizing around housing, education, healthcare, police misconduct, bringing the attention of each of these issues from each community out into the open. So that across the board, I think, there was a regular, bi-weekly source of information that allowed communities uh, communities across the city who were struggling with the same issues. Mm. Housing, education, police misconduct began, um, and, ha- um, and health care, that, that, that could see how they had similar struggles and how you, in, in the unique way in which it was presenting itself in different communities and how people were responding to it. And so that allowed for a conversation mm. about how things work in common, but also allowed for the conversation about how where things weren't. So in terms of answering your question, I am talking largely from the perspective of my particular lens, which was often 
reporting things to all Chicago City News and participating in the coalition against the 21 plan. Um, so I, I think that what I recall is the forums that were held, several forums held in Pilsen, mm. um, to specifically target in on getting unity and understanding around this issue of bilingual education. And so what happened was is that Rudy and other leaders invited Nancy Bird to come out to have that public conversation in a public forum uh, where they had the conversation and many, many people came to hear it and then obviously to uh, add some questions um, to it. Uh, but that was very impactful because there were a series of conversations that engaged the community in understanding, on the one hand, uh, in, in making sure their perspective was understood, but also, on the other hand, understanding why it was that there were other issues that, that, that were, were making it difficult to proceed. In particular, an understanding of the particular nature of racism and how it affected the different communities, and that that had to be addressed if by the Latino community, if there was going to be, um, in this instance, it was a um, Mexican-American conversation. But Rudy's stress was, we need to understand, we not only, we need to make sure that our issues are understood and why bilingual education is so critical. But on the other hand, we have to understand why the resistance sometimes comes when people feel like we're reacting in a racist manner. So we need to address that in order to get the common understanding. And Rudy really provided extraordinary leadership in this regard. One of the reasons that Harold Washington, when he was elected, was going to appoint him to be head of the Latino, the new Latino commission that was being established uh, when he was, but he was unfortunately murdered and that wasn't possible. Um, but I think that the leadership that existed both in the black and Latino communities uh, where these struggles were going on and their willingness to really connect with each other, understand the similar issues that they had and struggle to understand the, the different ways in which they were approaching it, especially when they didn't they weren't either in agreement or didn't understand why they weren't or didn't understand the issues, I was really critical in that moment in time. So, so much, so much, so much, uh, which is why I, A, love talking to you whenever I have an opportunity to just talk, but definitely exposing you to people who have not had the benefit that I've had, uh, which is, you know, learning mm -hmm. at your knee, right? Watching you and my mother and Regina and Slim and Curly and Karen and all those folks um, yeah. organize and build this movement based on mutual respect. Mm. Right. Like I was telling anti anti Miglietta, who's another uptown mm -hmm. night and still my boy. I was like, you know, I remember so well walking up those stairs when we would come to the uptown center. Right. And um, and he just laughed. I said, I, as a child, I remember feeling free. Mm. I remember feeling seen. I remember feeling that children had voice and agency and were respected in that space. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, which is yeah. why you guys turned out some some pretty fantastic kids who are now <laughs> adults and educators in their own right doing incredible work. But thank you for that moment in my history that I can point back to where I just felt so valued and I don't think I've ever had the opportunity to say publicly but Helen uh, by being a reporter she was actually the reporter of note covering the murder of chairman Fred mm -hmm. 
Um, but during that time in which she just reflected, she just was always taking so many photographs of, of what was happening at the time. And as a result of that, um, she gifted my sisters and I with just all of these photos of my mother wow. um, in her in the, in, her, in the heyday of her organizing days, um, being released from prison, addressing, you know, political figures in the city at that time. Just just a whole cachet of photographs. Wow. Um from my mother. And so, Helen, thank you uh, for that visual memory of my mother's activism. I'm so, so eternally grateful. Um, we got just a few more minutes, and I know we're going to have to take a break soon before we wrap up. But I wanted you to talk about the book. Can you share a little bit about the book, where people can buy it, what's about, and where they can come and see you? Okay, so it's called Bearing the Struggle, Bearing the Win. It's available virtually at any bookstore, I think, um, and online. Haymarket uh, uh, Books published it, and they currently have a promotion of 40% off on all their books, so that's a good place to go. But you can get them virtually anywhere, I think, um, pretty sure. And also, I'll be at Robert's Bookstore downtown at Macy's um, on Tuesday hmm. at, on the 20th at 5.30, signing books. So that's another place to go through downtown. Um, but at any rate, it's a, it's really the essence of the book is the point, the, tent, the period in the 70s and early 80s um, of the various, as an activist, some of the things I talked about here, and then my 24 years with city council. And I really wrote it because I start, it, it's a series of stories. I tried to make it read like a novel. And um, the first part of the book kind of gives the art, my origin story, So, uh, which actually starts with uh, my fiction, with the age of six being introduced to the concept of fascism by my dad. Um, but it is really, I think, I wrote it largely out of my frustration um, about what was happening in the world and in our country nationally, but also in our city, and that realizing that there was, I had lessons I thought through these stories, and it was uh, it would be an appropriate time to talk about it, but also searching for a voice to be able to have these conversations. Um, so I'd leave you with one thought, which is I really think that um, it's really critical to have any kind of progressive, forward-looking movement and, and policy change and, and change in culture um, and laws. It's necessary always to have a sea to swim in. Um, you guys are really big on building that sea. Um, and I think the one lesson I've learned over and over and over again is that we have to continue it. So we think we have a victory, but that doesn't mean anything unless we keep on going. It's just like, you know, a battle doesn't win the war and either does a single victory. So the, the act of organizing, the act of creating a sea that pushes the issues forward, that it demands uh, change, that speaks to power and forces people to actually act based on creating the sea is so critical. So the contribution that everyone makes is so important, and especially the one that you guys are making is really important during this time. Thank you. Thank you so, so much. Um, and I, listen, I'm going to figure out um, how to expand this conversation because you are one of our elders and you are just walking around with just all of this information mm-hmm. and definitely information that we need in terms of organizing. More lessons I'm sure you have to share with us about how do you seize a victory and how do you um, continue to push 
after a victory or how do you continue to push and organize even after a defeat? Right. Um, we are just sitting at critical times. And I, and I say these times are just as critical as uh, to when you guys got Harold elected, because I just feel like if we don't get the right person on the fifth floor now, um, the Negro Removal Act is in full effect in this city and that poor and oppressed people of all shades and hues will not have access to live in this city. Um, so this yeah, really is it's about. Not just, it's just, yeah. And, and it's not just one person. It, it's got to be. I mean, in Chicago, that includes the city council. But even more importantly, if we're not really doing the organizing work that's necessary, ongoing, it doesn't matter if you have one person there. They're not going to be effective. They're not going to be able to do what they need to do or maximize what they're doing. We really need to be there making, helping make that happen. Thank you. Thank you so much, Alan. Um, have so an amazing much, holiday season. I look forward to talking to you again. And you have just been a blessing um, to our listeners this morning. So thank you so much for, for loving me the way you do, that you will take my call at the last minute and jump off. <laughs> We really appreciate it, Helen. Very proud of you. (laughs) Thank you, ma'am. Thank you. Honestly, I felt like I was just listening to legend, right? Like you know, like to history. Um, So thank you very much, Helen, for being on, and and thank you, Tara, for for having having her on, and and thank you for bringing up this conversation today. You know, when uh, we talked about it and we we brainstormed it, I, I really appreciate you bringing these difficult conversations. We, to we got to keep having them. You know why it's so important that we keep having them, Eladio? Because people don't believe they exist until they see it. Mm. People don't believe they exist until they hear it. So people don't understand my love for you, my love for Anton, mm. because lo- they're like, what? you so pro-black. But I'm like, but our philosophy is the same. Our core value is the same. And when we build on truth, then the love is there. The love becomes evident when it's rooted in truth. So, peace out and tell the truth. People of the church said, Amen. <laughs> Thank you all for joining me. If you guys are able to stop by the Chicago Teachers Union, stop by. We're going to be there from 11 to 3 today. Um, it is the tailgate. New members, years one through five, come through. Meet Stacy. Meet Brandon. Meet me. Just come hang out. We're going to have football, fair, food, fun, fellowship, and football. And we're going to continue to unionize and build so that we can um, deliver a city that we all deserve to the people. 